Hello, and you are listening to Squash Radio. This is a brand new podcast that wants to bring the inside of squash to life by serving up the best stories. We are launching this channel with some in-depth interviews with some great people from the squash world. But we're also trying a little experiment first by doing two versions of each interview. One is the full-length interview that Squash Radio had with each guest, and two is a more produced version that takes some of the highlights from each conversation. Making those cuts is actually pretty challenging since we think it's all great content. But let us know what you think. Should we continue to do both? Send us an email to squashradio at gmail.com. Also, if you have any great stories that involve squash, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and thank you for listening. What about this? This call is being recorded. Hey there, Squash fans, and welcome to another episode of Squash Radio. We're very excited to bring you this guest today. He's based out of Chicago, and he's a guy that just radiates enthusiasm while even working tirelessly. He's been a pillar of the squash community in the Midwest, and just in general, is a great guy. This is John Flanagan, who is the athletic director at the University Club of Chicago, and is also part of the six-person leadership team to help oversee the strategic direction, finances, and operation of the club. Prior to his role as athletic director, he was the head squash professional at the University Club, as well as in Minneapolis, and has also served as the tournament director of three U.S. Open squash championships during his career. In 2015, Squash Magazine named him as part of the top 50 most influential persons in squash in the United States. Outside of squash, he also has a passion for literature, poetry, and music, where he tries to practice almost every day. He writes his own music and does several performances a year with his band 30 South. I had the pleasure of overlapping with John at the University Club of Chicago when I was the assistant squash pro and assistant tournament director of the Windy City Open for almost five years. We've since stayed in close contact and overlapped on several other squash projects. So here's a little overview of what we talk about during our conversation. We kick off the conversation talking about John's path to finding his first squash court, but then shift gears to talk about his role within the global squash community as the tournament director of the Windy City Open, which is one of the top eight squash tournaments in the world. We do spend a fair amount of time talking about the Windy City Open, and for good reason. There's so many facets to this event, but we start off with the basics on how to get the glass court into the building. So as you may know, in the club industry, there's always an expectation to go above and beyond to deliver. And the story that John shares with us about the Windy City Open and how they get the glass court into the venue, I think illustrates it pretty well. The rest of the time we spend talking about sponsors and how they make the event possible, but also the value that the sponsors get out of the event. And don't forget to stay tuned for the quickfire round with John Flanagan and find out about his new goal that many people might find a significant challenge. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and here we go. There, there's so many places I can start, but I think for you, John, there's a list of names I want to read to just orient the crowd on who you are. Okay. And that's Amanda Sobe, world ranked number six. Trinity squash coach and legend Paul Asiante, CEO and Com- of Comcast NBC Brian Roberts, 
and even Wolverine himself, Hollywood actor Hugh Jackman. And on that same list is yourself, John Flanagan. Wow, I, I, I never really thought of myself in the same uh, crowd as uh, those people, especially Hugh Jackman, but uh, the common thread is squash, obviously. Yeah, well, this was uh, in, in 2015, uh, Squash Magazine issue um, of the top 50 most influential persons in the United States involved in squash. And you are among that list. So, um, you know, wh- when you found out you got that, how did you react? Oh, uh, I, I guess the first reaction was just it was a great honor. You know, it's, uh, I've been involved in the sport for, I guess, about 30 years now from the time I first picked up a racket. And, you know, um, like a lot of people who are involved in the sport, you do a lot for it day in, day out, especially, you know, if you're, if you're really in the business of being a squash pro at a club or, you know, in, in any facet of the game. Um, so I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who deserve recognition. And yeah, it's great to be recognized by U.S. squash. Well, where I'd like to start off is actually going back to uh, before you were in the top 50 most influential people in the United States for squash. And, and even before you touch a squash racket. Talk to me a little bit about your jobs and your career path prior to uh, finding squash. Yeah, yeah. That well, that's kind of a yeah. My career path is definitely a crooked road. But I'll, I'll start with the, my sports past, I guess. You know, I grew up in Southern Indiana, a little town called New Albany, and I grew up playing basketball like most people in Indiana do. But I'm the youngest of seven, and so all my older siblings played tennis. We had a public park in our backyard where everyone played tennis and. Uh, I was no exception, and that's what I played through high school, and I thought I would really be into it in college. I went to school at a Division three school. I tried out for the team. I made the team, and I quit the next day because um, I decided I was just kind of burned out in tennis and wanted to do something else. But um, after college, you know, I, I got married right out of college to uh, my wife, Michelle Zerkowski, and we're still married today, 36 years later. But um out of college, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. We both had studied abroad, uh, Michelle and I, and wanted to uh, go abroad again. I majored in English and French in college, and, you know, there's not a lot of uh, job opportunities, uh, like, right at your doorstep when you major in the liberal arts like that, and I, I really uh, never considered myself much of a business guy. So we got involved with a volunteer program to go abroad and teach English at a university in Poland, and that was in 19... 19- 82. So martial law was still on then. And um, we've lived pretty much like, and we were, I guess, kind of privileged Westerners, but we lived on a like a student teacher's, not a student teacher, teaching assistant kind of salary. So we did that for a year. Um, I did play tennis over there, actually, made some good friends in Poland playing on their, like a club tennis team that the University of Lublin had. I came back after that uh, to the United States, and um, you know Michelle and I both trying to find our way. Ended up back in Southern Indiana. I took a job in Louisville, Kentucky, working in a French bakery because I'm fluent in French, and they'd hired a French baker, and he didn't speak in English. So uh, I think unemployment was in double digits at that point in time. So I was just happy to have a job and uh, try to find myself, figure out what I wanted to do. Did that for a year, and uh, then after that. I moved uh, to Colorado, to Durango, to help my sister and her husband start their own business, which was taking uh, people up into to the wilderness, the Womenuch Wilderness area there in the southwestern corner of Colorado. Uh, but they used llamas as pack animals. So I was kind of a camp cook and uh, assistant guy, llama herder, I guess. I'm not, not really a herder, just trying to wrangler, I guess. that's Wrangler, yeah. When you take care of that. Did that for a summer. 
after that ended, worked uh, in a chocolate factory in Durango, the actual factory, not a Rocky Mountain chocolate factory outlet, but the actual factory for a year. Uh, moved to Minneapolis after that because uh, although we loved Durango, uh, the small town, like uh, we lived in a really, I guess, I guess it was isolated. It was way up a valley in a little A-frame shack with no TV, no phone. So definitely different from modern life today, but we really liked it. Uh, but it finally started to drive Michelle crazy, I think. So she's a very bright, gifted person. Um, she applied to graduate school. We ended up in Minnesota. She could go to the University of Minnesota. And uh, that's where I first took up squash. I remember you telling me, I believe you said it was apprentice to a, a master candy maker, right? Oh, uh, yeah, that was, that was in uh, Durango. And there you uh, go. This uh, wonderful gentleman, Everett Seeley, used to work for the Mars uh, Chocolate Factory. You know, it's funny, these cooking jobs I had, like uh, the factory and the bakery, uh, they taught me organizational skills. Mm. Because you have to time everything in the kitchen and in the bakery about, you know, when you make what, when it comes out. And you had to have a plan every day. That really helped me. Yeah. The skills that translate over towards uh, any other job, yeah. But then you found squash, so sort of taking a crooked path there. But so, it, well, I, what happened there is I got, <clears throat> I had illusions of being a, a writer at the time, and so Michelle was in graduate school, and I was just looking for a part-time job where I could go do some writing. I actually got a job as a locker room attendant at the uh, Minneapolis Athletic Club, and that's where I first saw squash uh, being played. It was hardball back then. Uh, that was in 1985, 86. And uh, I knew how to string rackets from the time I was a kid and uh, my involvement in tennis, something my brother and I did in the basement of our home to make money. And we, uh, in Minneapolis, I, I found out there was a club in St. Paul called the Commodore Squash Club, a revered squash club. And they had you know, big events there. And I called over there to find out how to string a squash racket one day in terms of how high I could put the tension on it. And the pro there started talking to me and said, hey, we need somebody to string rackets. And of course, I needed the money. So I went over there and met the pro and, and the club, John Jasinski is the pro's name, one of my mentors, mm -hmm. a great guy. But you know, I'd never even really heard of squash growing up in a little town in Southern Indiana. And I guess going in the door, thought, gosh, you know, I, I knew a little bit about it, I guess. Maybe I thought it was going to, I just, my impression was it was going to be really snobby, you know, because it's a high-end economic uh, demographic. And But I walked in and there were all these people like hanging around drinking beer <laughs> from all over the world and they were all super friendly. And, and you wow, felt like you could fit in? Yeah, yeah. I thought, you know, people drinking beer and with a racket around and having a good time, I, I could do this. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. So uh, and, actually, the first time, the first guy, I'll tell you, the first guys I saw play, I kind of watched like they were like, you know, D hardball players. And, you know, I was a pretty good tennis player. And I watched these guys play. I'm like, this is the dumbest racket sport I've ever seen. And one night I was stringing rackets late at the uh, Commodore Club. And these uh, two guys, Frank Fairman and Jamie Barrett, both of them had played in college, one at Princeton, one at Yale, I believe. And late at night, they were, you know, after their jobs were hitting like nine or 10 o'clock at night. And I went down and watched them. And I just was kind of awestruck. I was like, wow, it's a totally different game from the D players I saw. And these guys were really impressive. So kind of got me involved in the sport. And now that's been, um, gosh, almost 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. That was like about 30 years ago. And of course, you know, so we've seen the change from hardball to softball, like a lot of people who've been involved in the U.S. in the game for a long time. How about, did you start playing hardball or you, you did you start with the international game? I started playing with a softball but on an international, uh, sorry, on a um, hardball court, hardball court, playing hardball, scoring to 15. So, I mean, I, di I didn't, so there was definitely a transition period of the, that I experienced, but uh, nothing is, I think, as stark because the decision had been made. So it was just a matter of time. So that was but, probably in the mid 90s. 
probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, one other thing before we dive more into uh, the squash background is, you know, as I've gotten to know you over the years, two things I think maybe aren't as obvious to someone who who just meets you is is your passion for for music and literature. And um, you've been able to pursue your your profession and excel in it but then you've you've also done such a remarkable job of keeping up your passion and i just want to talk a little bit about wh- how you still explore that now and how you kind of scratch that itch ah yeah i guess that's a good question i mean it's quite sure where to start i think it's important that we all have you know uh outside interests of our job I and mean, everyone in america it's so easy to get so career focused on everything and not that I'm not career focused, I certainly am, but these other parts of your brain and your uh, your heart and your soul, you definitely have to work to keep them alive and keep them going. And, you know, I started playing guitar when I was a kid, never had much formal training, played more in college, played in a garage band or two, uh, played guitar and just really enjoyed it. And yeah, I've always loved reading as a kid. And then I studied English and uh, French in college, as I mentioned earlier. And you know, playing the guitar is a great way to meet people. You know, I had some someone from uh, the great generation tell me once when they were kids, you know, everybody learned to play piano and they'd go to a party at somebody's house and there'd be a piano there and somebody, you know, you'd sit down at the piano and everybody knew a handful of songs. They'd sit around the song uh, piano and have drinks and sing the song, you know, kind of like a, a living room concert or piano bar. I think that's, for my generation, that that's what the guitar became. You know, a lot mm. of people know how to play guitar, could make friends and play music and you know, music, it's, I think, you know, you're a, you're a music fan, you know, popular music, rock music, blues, whatever. Yeah. It, it it speaks to uh, all of us. It's part of who we are. So, yeah, I've always tried to keep it alive. Um, it's definitely been challenging at some point in time. <laughs> I'm sure I drive my family crazy sometimes playing the same songs over and over. And, um, yeah, in terms of literature, like I said earlier, I, I wanted to, you know, I had illusions of being a writer. And, I, you know, I never penned a novel or anything. I wrote some short stories. I had some poetry published. But I still do songwrite, I can tell you that, and uh, perform my songs with bands uh, around the area here and there. And uh, that's a real fun thing to do. So it, it's hard work, kind of, to put it all together, but it's really fun at the end to play music and share a song with someone that you, you help make with some, with another person. I mean, even just today, you were practicing for, you. It sounds, I think you have a um, a gig coming up, is that right? That's right, yeah. We This has become a tradition. I guess, you know, I was... <laughs> I felt like you said, you know, how do you find a way to make time kind of to, to do this stuff? And the university club, uh, you know, where I've worked for 18 years is big on building community. And we have all these different kinds of societies there. You know, there's a gardening society and a wine society and civic affairs and golf society. And so I decided I wanted to meet some other musicians. I kept bumping into people who used to play, you know, music in a band or whatever. And I thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we started a, a band society? So we called this the House Band Society. And fortunate, we've been, you know, able some people have, club members have joined us. Uh, we've got about... I think six or seven band members now, and we've played the Windy City Open party, a party with the pros on Saturday night for probably six years running. And Metro Squash, which is an urban squash education program here in Chicago, we played our gala every year now for three or four years. So yeah, but we, uh, you know, we, we practice at the university club in the group exercise room, uh, usually on one evening, uh, weeknight, and one weekend day when we've got a gig coming up. Yeah, I was down at the club earlier today with five wonderful members, and we laughed a lot. There's a lot, a lot of really quick-witted, funny people in the band and uh, laid down some good grooves and you know, getting ready for the Windy City Open Party. 
I will be honest and tell you, it is a little exhausting by the time I get on the stage at whatever, 8.30 or 9 on a Saturday night, four days, five days into the tournament. But uh, it's a great release. You know, it's, it's, it's not, you know, squash related per se. It's just the party and get up there on the, on the stage with my friends and play the guitar, kind of cut loose a little bit, thing with other people. It's, it's, it's a blast. We really have a good time doing it. Well, um, I mean, that's a great transition to what is probably soaking up most of your time right now outside of your actual job. Uh, but the Windy City Open is coming up. And uh, yeah, into February, yeah. We're actually about two and a half weeks away. The countdown is on. So for the Windy City Open, I want to rewind the clock a little bit and talk a little bit about, you know, once the court starts coming in, this is no small feat to get a 20,000-pound court into the university club and, and describe a little bit about what you and your staff have to do in order to, to make that happen. I'd be happy to tell that story. And I'll start with year one, which was uh, uh, almost a catastrophic year that we first brought the glass court in. But, you know, the the club, you know, because you've been there, but uh, for anybody listening, it's, you know, limestone, gothic, architectural treasure, 108 years old. And as you can imagine, we don't have a big dock area. We don't have a big freight elevator. So fortunately, uh, most of the glass panels will fit on the elevator. But the large frame pieces that support the court or that support the court floor, yeah, they have, we have to get everything up to the ninth floor to our beautiful Cathedral Hall dining room and uh, whether you know, we set up the court in the, the spectator gallery. So these long pieces, uh, they're 16 feet long. The only way to get them uh, up to the ninth floor is to drop our freight elevator below the first level of the, the main floor. And we have a special elevator engineer come in and um, we then go upstairs, a flight of stairs above that. We open up those elevator doors, uh, the doors that you know shield the shaft. And uh, we drop a rope down and time around these 16-foot pieces, and then there's two or three guys at the bottom, and we carefully brace them on top of the elevator, and there's people, there's another assistant on top of the elevator kind of holding them straight and steady. They're not terribly heavy now. They used to be. And then we slowly, slowly take the elevator up, uh, you know, seven or eight floors, and then we open the the elevator, the doors uh, on the floor, the ninth floor, open them up, and then walk that through the kitchen and into the main dining room. I think we have to do that 16 times. It, all the uh, the braces, the support pieces up there. I said I want I want to I want to re, do you have a question? I wanted to rewind back to year one, the first time we did this, because that's a yeah. funny story. Yeah, well, funny. It's funny now. <laughs> 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 At the time, I almost had a heart attack, but we had a, a miscommunication. I'll call it with the. Uh, court company that we used at that time. And they were bringing in, uh, they, I, they told me these pieces they were bringing in were, I don't know, 18 feet long. And so chief engineer and I, Marty Kane, who's a fantastic uh, engineer, uh, crewman, uh, team member at the university club, and I got a, you know 18 foot piece of a PVC pipe, walked it through. We figured out we could just make it, you know, if we went through the front lobby and took a turn, we could just make it on top of the freight elevator. But what the company didn't tell us uh, was that there was a big three-foot flange at the bottom of that beam. And there's no way we could get those things through. So <laughs> the first piece we're trying to get through, we can't get it in. It's the first time we've ever done the glass court at the club. And I'm walking around the club with the chief engineer trying to figure out, is there any other way we could get them up to the ninth floor? And we can't find any other way to get them up there. And I'm sweating bullets. Like, you know. <laughs> I think I've worked at the club three or four years, and all the money's there, everything's ready to go, and you can't get the cord in. But uh, what happened is uh, we figured out, the chief figured out that if we uh, <laughs> cut part of the quarter oak out of our lobby and busted down a wall, we could make the turn. 
So uh, he called the general manager, uh, John Spitalette, who's been at the club, I think, more than 35 years now, fantastic guy, comes down and takes a look at the situation and um, says, yeah, let's do it. And uh, I don't know too many general managers of private clubs who would be able to do this, but, you know, John actually grabbed the Sawzall and started <laughs> cutting into the quarterfinal <laughs> in the front lobby <laughs> of his club. And, uh, yeah, I'm thinking I'm probably going to be fired uh, when all this is done. <laughs> this doesn't go really First and well. last class board event, right? But we did it. You know, we got everything in. And uh, the lobby, uh, you know, if you didn't know what it looked like before, you wouldn't be able to tell. We put it all back together. We got everything up there and got it in. And, you know, that was the start of the glass court in Cathedral Hall. It was very well received. We both know what the dramatic difference can be having a glass court uh, from reviewing experience. But the Windy City Open has been going on for over 30 years now, and it hasn't always been a glass court. What, what was the impetus behind making that transition or the, the leap to, to bring in the glass court event? Um, I think that's one of the reasons they hired me. Uh, when I was, you know, I, I was recruited to come down from the Minneapolis Athletic Club. I run two glass court events in Minneapolis, the U.S. Opens, and I think the club wanted to continue to enhance its reputation. And so they thought, hey, you know, this guy's a, a pretty well-known coach, but he can also run big events. It'd be cool if we could do this at the University Club. So uh, we tried to get the U.S. Open one year uh, early on in my days there. It didn't happen. And to remember who the tournament got awarded to. Uh, this was before, way before Kevin Klipstein's time. But no big deal. Uh, we just decided, hey, you know, what the heck? Windy City Open's been around for 20-something years. That doesn't have to be the U.S. Open to be a glass court event. We could do a glass court event and kind of put the Windy City Open on the map. So the, uh, that's what we decided to do. And so now, uh, fast forward to where it is today, and the Winnie City Open is one of the World Series events on the World Tour. And talk a little bit about, uh, I think we, we all kind of see it come together from the outside, but how do you pull that together from your perspective? Uh, you mean, how do we reach World Series status? Yes. That. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, after the recession hit, I guess having the glass court, you know, a lot of it just centers around you know, the sponsorships right? and the relationships you're able to build with your sponsors and keep going. Uh, the first ones we did with a company called SSA Global, and that company, uh, they were club members, the CEO uh, was a club member, and they ended up selling the company, but we had an agreement to keep it going for a while. And then, like I said, the recession hit, and we had to downsize the tournament because we didn't have any big sponsors. So... I think for a few years there, it was, well, it was $20,000 and maybe one year, even 10 or 15, I can't remember. And then I think it was four years ago now, a good friend of mine at the club, the Windy City Open Tournament treasurer, Lonnie Essex, also a bass player in the band in the past, uh, became friends with Mark Walter. Uh, their children attended the same school. Mark Walter is the CEO of Guggenheim Partners. And he's a big sports fan. He's also, uh, I think, the major shareholder of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And, you know, Lonnie had been talking to him about squash and how cool it was. And it, I was dying for a sponsor one year and um, they came in, Guggenheim Partners came in to sponsor it. And it was their first year with us, I think we did um, a twenty or $30,000 event. And Mark came down and looked at it and saw the squash and brought his family down to watch. And they were, you know what it's like, Connor, if you've never seen squash before, pro squash, and uh, you like sports and you like, you know, watching athletes, it's... <laughs> You're pretty, you know, it, it's a pretty amazing experience. So um, he really enjoyed it and liked the way we were doing the event. And afterwards, pulled me aside and said, "Hey, you know, Lonnie told me about this glass court thing you used to do. But tell me about that and what kind of players, you know, do you get?" And so I explained to him kind of what it takes in terms of dollars and cents. And he said, "Yeah, okay, I think we'll do it." <laughs> pretty, pretty short, sweet conversation. Uh, they ju they jumped in for um, 
not going to quote dollars, but a significant amount, the lion's share of what we needed to get the glass court that first year, four years ago. And they loved the event. And then we sat down uh, after that event or towards the tail end of it with um, the PSA uh, executive staff, Lee Beachel and Alex Goff, kind of said, hey, they talked to me about what a World Series event, three-year contract, this is what they're looking for. And the other thing was, uh, and they wanted, they talked about doing prize money parity at the time. And that, that turned out to be a really important, uh, very important issue for, for our sponsor, for Mark Walter and Guggenheim Partners. And I didn't mention Equitrust Life Insurance Company. They joined us this uh, over this three-year deal as well. Very important to both those groups. So, uh, yeah, you know, uh, we had a nice conversation with Mark and he said, hey, let's do it. Then, uh, yeah, this is year three of our three-year contract and uh, we've really enjoyed the past three years. I mean, it's, it's been great to have a World Series event uh, in the Midwest. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would echo just the, not just the leap of faith, but really the leadership role that the Winnie City Open and uh, Guggenheim and Equitrust to help bring around the parity issue of prize money in the United States and the world uh, to the forefront. I mean, it really is, it takes events like the Windy City Open to step up and, and do it. Uh, a huge applause. Yeah, and, Andy, to- Andy, you know, I, I'd like just to say, yeah, and the U.S. Open, I know the U.S. squash and U.S. Open were really, were they the first? Were you, you know, you would know yeah. the answer. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, we were the first. Um, the U.S. Open took took that first leap, but you know, it's one of those things of of being first. But then uh, you can be out there alone. But to have other people really no b- believe in the cause as well. I mean, that's significant. So uh, hats right. off. No, no, we've been thrilled, and it's been great for us. It's another feather in our cap. The University Club doesn't like to be perceived as a stodgy old city club. You know, we're not. We're a very progressive club, and the fact that we were able to, the support of all the sponsors, we're able to say, hey, we offer prize money parity at the highest level for the sport has been great for us. Well, beyond your title sponsors, I know it takes just a a tremendous amount of other sponsors and patrons to help make this event possible. And you you end up having to be having some of these conversations. And how do you position it to make it a a win-win for your sponsors and the event? Well, I think for... Um, for our event, anyway, the biggest, I guess, the biggest thing I think is, is for the audience that's there. It's it's a fantastic client entertainment event at what I think is a fairly good value. Our corporate sponsorships at the the entry level is four thousand dollars, then seven thousand, then twelve thousand five hundred, then twenty five thousand, and then title sponsorship, which is a big number. But you talk to people about how much they would spend on a golf event for their clients' entertainment and goes up into the thousands pretty quickly. You know, for $4,000 or $7,000, you can entertain several clients every day over a seven-day period. And, you know, we have a, a wonderful corporate sponsors lounge that we set up courtside, and our club is known for fine dining as well. So the, the food service there, it's, it's not like you're just have a bunch of, you know, pieces of pizza and some hamburger. It's really, you know, fantastic food that the sponsors get and open bar there for them too. So there's that piece of it. And then the entertainment is, you know, the pro squash is captivating and it's fascinating. And the players have great personalities and they're approachable. And uh, I guess I wouldn't say finally, but as the kind of a coup de grace, you know, the glass court in Cathedral Hall is, it's unique, a sporting event, a world-class sporting event. In a venue where they're surrounded by hand-painted glass uh, and a 24-foot ceiling and all these beautiful carved um, uh, arches on the top. It's to- totally unique, and uh, it's an intimate experience for a pro sporting event. I mean, you, you've been a part of it <laughs> as an assistant yeah. director uh, a couple of years, and, and you've seen it, I think, as a spectator a little bit, too. I mean, it's, you have to admit, it is, it's 
pretty unique and cool, right? It's one of the most unique settings, I think, on the tour. Definitely the Cathedral Hall itself uh, sets it apart from a lot of the other events on the world tour. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's definitely, uh, it, it's unique and it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's, and you and I have talked about this before because I know when you were directing the U.S. Open, it's, it's a blessing and a curse. It's, it's a beautiful, absolutely stunning setting. And, but at the same time, it's, it's not that big of a venue for, for the, for the event. And so it's, um, we do wish sometimes we had a little more space to spread things out a little bit, but, uh, well, I think that one of the nice things or the great things that the PSA tour has done is with squash TV, you know, that you're reaching a wider audience. So all that effort, it's, you're maximizing the impact for the community within the Chicago area, but then the world community can also enjoy it. So I think, yeah. um, uh, it's been a huge component for tour and, and each event. Um, yeah, so, I think, I, so you've been in the lead role of having to sell, quote, sell squash, and uh, as have I. And there was a NPR piece that came out. It was both a radio piece, but then also a nice article that just kind of, it's it kind of reaffirmed, I know what we've been saying for so many years, just how great uh, a, a value of sponsoring a squash tournament can be. And, and that it, I believe the quote was that go, squash is the new golf in terms of right. the clientele it can reach. And as you know, the the sports marketplace and sports sponsorship is such a crowded marketplace that you, you need new opportunities to reach those clients. I mean, yeah, I saw that article and yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, it's, I guess I'd say my experience generally has been if, if I'm talking to someone at a company and they are not familiar with squash, it, it's definitely a harder sell because they don't really know what they're getting into. If they know squash and they know what it is, then they know the demographic and I think they they understand the value of it. The trick is, you know, just getting people who you know have not been exposed to it to see the value in that they can, even though the demographic might not be quite as large as, you know, it's definitely not as large as golf, I guess. It's very targeted and it's a very elite group. I don't have any of the statistics off the top of my head in terms of the, the net worth of the median, the median net worth of a squash player, but it's very high and lots of decision makers and companies involved in the sport. One of the cool things about pitching it at the club is, uh, you know, we look at the statistics when I'm talking to someone and saying, we, we, these are the national statistics, but we think at the club, the statistics, you can raise the bar a little bit because of, you know, we are a university club. That means you have to have a degree just to, to be a member of the club. So, and we know our demographic. Mm -hmm. So it's a great connection, but we're trying to get a watch company involved and a card company involved. And right. uh, that's, been, that's been a tougher sell, I think, probably because it doesn't have as much mass media reach well I, I i love numbers and i've i've had to uh be fairly close to these numbers in the past so i can fill that data for you it's a 98 percent of squash players have graduated from college on average they have over three hundred thousand dollars of income coming in per year and over 1.5 million dollar net worth and 36 percent of the players also have a c-suite status or the owner or president of a company right right so that's one of the definitely one of the pitches we make is like you know hey when you're when you're a corporate sponsor here it's it's not the broad reach that Squash TV can give you it's the people in the audience you're sitting next to in the lounge you know and that's one thing I really try to do uh, because it is a smaller crowd and a more intimate setting I try to connect sponsors with other sponsors and so they can make new relationships make friendship and a lot of good business is done you know courtside and uh, on the golf course whatever so much of it is about relationships and. Uh, when you share an experience, it, it really has an impact sometimes on what happens next, the business relationship. Absolutely. Well, in in terms of looking towards uh, the 2017 Windy City Open, what are you most excited about? I mean, you've been doing this for so many years, but uh, I think there's there's always something new coming up. And so what are you excited about for this year? Well, 
last year we started uh, kind of following with U.S. Squash and U.S. Open and the Tournament of Champions. They launched, a, I think, maybe five or six years ago, a Women's Leadership Award program, and we thought this is something we should definitely be doing as well. So we did it last year. And um, through um, one of our committee people, uh, who's also um, connected with our, our corporate sponsor, with our title sponsor, Kim Walter, Mark Guggenheim's wife, uh, very involved in a lot of uh, civic activities in Chicago. And uh, we told her about this and wanted to do. We're looking for speakers. Last year, she was able to get Jackie Drina Kersey for us as a speaker, which was you know fantastic to have her there. So started working with Kim last fall, talking about who we could get. And you know, I grew up playing tennis. I mentioned that earlier. We're very excited this year to have Billie Jean King coming as our keynote speaker. You know, she's uh, a pioneer in social justice and equality issues uh, for women in sport, women in business. Uh, needless to say, she's also a tennis legend. I, I think she's got like 39 Grand Slam titles. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I, you know, I was like maybe 10 or 12 years old when she played Bobby Riggs. And I had older sisters who played tennis. And I just wanted, you know, her to beat Bobby Riggs so badly. <laughs> Uh, you know, although the whole thing was kind of gimmicky, it really brought a lot of things to light in terms of parity for sport, and it was a big boom for tennis. So um, it's me, Billie Jean King. I guess that's it's, it's you know related to Windy City. I'm really excited that I get to meet her and that uh, she's going to be in our club. Yeah, well, I mean, what a great role model and legend, uh, living legend, really. And um, you know, it's fitting with what Windy City Open's done with parity and prize money that she will be able to attend and and celebrate that. So that's great. Yeah, no, it's fantastic and. Of course, you know, I mean, like you said, what's, you know, I, I'm excited about the pro squash. I, I, I do get to watch a bit, uh, even though I'm running around to trying to make sure everything's going well. You know, there's some exciting matches from the first round in the men's match. If if, the, if no one pulls out, which you never know, you know, we've got Rami Ashur and James Bolstrop uh, in the first round. I mean, how cr- how crazy is that for a first round match? It's like, that could be two, a final. <laughs> yeah, two former world number ones battling out round yeah. one. And then well, we've that's... also got... Paul Cole facing um, Mohamed El Sherbagi. Oh, wow. You know, Paul Cole's definitely been a comer. And uh, I think Mohamed, you know, if I were him, like number one seed, no pr- you know, no pressure on the other guy coming in, you know. Right, right. Uh, that could be a good one. Well, that's really exciting. And um, I'm sure all the hard work that, that you and your team put in, I mean, the community just thoroughly enjoys it. And so, you know, thank you for all the hard work you do on behalf of the Chicago and world, <laughs> world squash community. Uh-huh. You're welcome. It is, you know, it is a lot of work and there are days when you pull your hair out. But and one of the fantastic things about it is, you know, like you talked about the community is just, first of all, the like, kind of staff community, the, the university club and the athletic department team, you know, John Rooney, Yoni Elis and Tisha Tillman really work with me hand, you know, side by side to pull the event off. And then we've got, you know, two committees, probably a total of about 20 people and tons of volunteers really, you know, help pull it all together. And one thing we haven't talked about is Metro Squash. And I guess for a World Series event, we're we're kind of a, we're an oddity, you know, we're a hybrid, we're a club event, but at the same time, we have this really top level status as a pro event. We, we don't really run the event to make the club a lot of money. Uh, we try to run it pretty close to break even, maybe make a little money, but our goal is to donate a chunk of cash to Metro Squash at the end of it. And uh, they've been at the heart of our community. We've been, they've been a part of our event since they first came incorporated in, I guess, 11 years ago now. They're part of it, and uh, we're we're thrilled to to keep it going. We'll keep it going as long as we can. <laughs> so now I'd like to shift a little bit into your role at the university club. And you joined the university club in 1999, and your role within the club has has changed a lot over the year. Not only, I mean, part of it is because the the club has grown so much over that time frame, but 
talk a little bit about where you started and where it is now and even where you're trying to go as a both your department but then also as a club. Yeah. Well, sometimes when he introduces me, the general manager will say, this is John Flanagan, our athletic director. He started out as the head squash pro, but he wasn't any good at that. So we moved him on to the athletic director role. <laughs> He's joking, of course. At least I think he is. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I started out there as head pro. And when I started out, they had we had one staff person who did game arranging, you know, on a big tablet of paper and me. And um, from the day I walked in, I think I had four or five lessons a day every day for the first year. And I think the Windy City Open, the first one I did, I think I had six weeks of preparation time from the time I walked in the door. But again, had a great committee and we pulled it off well. Yeah. So I think the first assistant pro I hired was Nathan Dugan. And that was probably in 2001, 2000. I'd been there a year, maybe two. And yeah, if the squash community is listening to this, a lot of people know Nathan Dugan. He's the pro at the Cincinnati Country Club now. And he did a lot for our program. It was the first time the club had ever had two pros. And I definitely convinced them we needed them. And we needed two people. And that worked out really well. Uh, Nathan moved on, as I mentioned earlier. And he's been uh, helping to grow squash in the Midwest. And it was around that time that you started working for us. You were one of our assistants for a while there, pal. Yeah, I overlapped. Uh, I was there from 2003 to 2007. So I overlapped with Nathan and then uh, Mark Heather came on. Right. So yeah. I get to... Yeah, no, we, and hey, if you, if you ever want your old job back, let us know. We're <laughs> still open. <laughs> um, but we, um, I think it was around the time, a little before we hired Mark Heather, that the athletic department was growing. We were getting more and more members, more and more squash players. The club had never had an athletic director before, and uh, they gave me the opportunity to try to do both uh, head pro and athletic director. So, uh, of course, I said yes to that challenge, and you know, I definitely had a lot to learn. And the first few years were definitely very challenging for me, managing more people, getting to know the different areas and how they operate. I would say I'm still learning, uh, honestly, uh, but I've, I've come close to mastering some of the different pieces and building up different programs in the club outside of squash. But you know, one thing we did uh, some of the Projects I've been able to be involved with then is we redid our men's locker room. We spent two or three million, two and a half million building this beautiful locker room. And I was a part of that project. And once that project was successfully executed, I was asked to join the senior management team of the club. So I'm one of six staff members who work on kind of seeing the big picture of the club and oh, overlooking its, everything from its finances to strategy and tactics. And it's been a fantastic thing to be a part of the team, really smart. Uh, people, you know, our executive chef, Mark Baker, our room's uh, assistant general manager, Ed Tindall, John Spitaletta, general manager, and Don Cameron is our CFO, and uh, our newest member is um, Alma Guerrero, HR director, and they're all smart people, thoughtful, funny, um, run the club with a lot of integrity, so proud to be a part of that team, and like I said, still learning about management pieces, and the club is, you know, it's um, it's one of those wonderful old city clubs, uh, has a lot of great traditions, but has still managed to be progressive and keep things, stay up with the time, so to speak. Uh, everything in terms of membership policies, and encouraging, you know, more younger people and women to join our club. We have very good diversity in the club for, especially for a city club, I think. And we're just now uh, in this past September, we started our biggest expansion plan yet. We are, we own the building next door to us and we're actually adding two stories on top of it to build um, some more casual dining space. Right now, there's no place in the club where you can dine you're interested in denim casually. 
So um, we're meeting that need, and we're also going to have a new rooftop restaurant that looks right out at Millennium Park on Michigan Avenue. So definitely our biggest renovation ever because we're actually building on top of another building. And we're the club's doing very well right now, but we think this is really going to put us over the top. Exciting times at the club. It's kind of never a dull moment place. It seems like every time I talk to you that there's a new construction project going on that uh, <laughs> you somehow have your, you're involved with. And, and what about, I mean, talk a little bit about where this, just specifically with the squash courts, when you came oh, in, yeah. what it was, and then that transition. Yeah, sure. We kind of skipped over that. So when I first started, there were two courts on the 12th floor, locker room in my office on the 11th floor, and then two courts on the 7th floor. So, you know, running a, any kind of tournament or mixer was really challenging to do with any kind of real social element. Uh, there was no space behind the courts on the 12th floor. I wouldn't say no space, very little space. You could maybe fit six or seven people behind the back of each court. And then on the 12th floor, on the 7th floor, there was more space. But again, you know, you had to get up and down and the club only has two elevators, two front elevators to move around in and two back elevators. So you could wear yourself out taking the stairs up and down. So what happened, I mentioned we owned the building next to us. A club member owned that building and he offered to sell it to us when he retired. We purchased the building, which is seven stories high. And after we purchased it, uh, a developer came to us and said, hey, you don't know us, but we're going to be your new neighbors. We want to build this 45-story condominium building on the west side of your this building you just bought. And we need the air ride to that building. So you have to promise us you won't build up any higher than two floors. That's what we need. What do you need? And we're like, well, you know, you know we're downtown Chicago, you know, Michigan Avenue and Monroe Street, we need more space, you know, especially athletic space. You know, we don't have enough athletic space. The club wasn't built as an athletic club. So they said, I'll tell you what, we'll give you 8,000 square feet of space and build a sky bridge between that connects the two buildings. And then on top of the agreement was, you know, we get to market, the developer gets to market to our club members for five years. And then we could also market to their residents for five years about getting a, a condo unit there and we could market our membership to them, to their residents. So we got 8,000 square foot of space there, and um, we built uh, four single squash courts and one doubles court. We had a, we'd had a doubles court uh, in the past, but we lost it when we renovated our locker room. So that made us end up with six uh, singles courts. We had four singles courts on the 11th floor uh, with the doubles court and then two on the seventh floor. But the space we got uh, in this new building on the 11th floor has floor-to-ceiling glass windows that look out at uh, Millennium Park, Michigan Avenue, and the lakefront. You know, you've spent a lot of time around squash courts. You know, a lot of times you feel like you're in a cave, right? right. You know, there's, there's never any natural light. I still think there's rarely a day goes by when I don't walk over to the courts and, you know, see all this natural light flooding in and thinking, man, is fantastic. You know, you, or you go to pick up a doubles ball and look through the back uh, glass and you, in the summertime and you see all these sailboats out on Lake Michigan. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it, it's a crazy setting for a, a beautiful sport. Uh, yeah, that was, you know, fantastic. And, you know, that definitely has helped us grow the sport. I don't know if I told you this or not, but with this expansion, we had to get rid of these two courts on the seventh floor. So we demolished them. And on the 12th floor, when we did the first expansion, if you can keep track of this, we the, the club decided we didn't need eight courts. So uh, we put in an indoor golf center, like a golf simulator practice area. But with this recent expansion, since we lost the seventh floor court, we moved the golf center to the building next door. So now there are two courts on the 12th floor again because we really needed those six courts. So now you have a total of uh, six courts and one doubles court? Yeah, six uh, six singles, one doubles, and, you know, I'm trying to, there is a way we could, we figured out, there's a way we can squeeze two more courts into the club on the very top level of the club. We're working on a tentative plan to see if in the near future we can 
add two more courts. We could really use them. You know, we have over 350 active players, probably about 50 kids in our junior program now. Or since you know, Mark Hedder, John Rooney, and Yoni Elis have uh, been with us five years, Yoni has. They've done such a great job growing our junior program that we're court starved at the moment. So good problem. What you had, you and your team have been able to help build up there is one of the most successful squash programs in the country. I mean, what would you, if you had to pick one or two things to credit or that you, to try and replicate that success, what, what would you say those are? Well, I'd say the first one is don't think it can't be done. It's like when, when I started there, there weren't, there wasn't any junior squash at the club and I started, and you know, it's like you're, and you know, part of your brain just thinks, well, you're downtown. And of course, some people live downtown, but not a lot of people live downtown. And you know, you're never going to get kids coming in after school. You're never going to, you know, maybe you'll have some weekends, but that's it. If you'd have told me when I started that our junior program would be as robust as it is now, I probably <laughs> would not have bought it. But you know, so we started, you know, doing stuff on the weekends when I was there, and you know, it started to grow and grow and. And then we figured out the kids really needed to play more. So we started to have like more kind of informal social play days with the kids and got all these, you know, young squash playing members. A lot of them are going to have kids eventually, and then they're going to want their kids to share in the sport they love. And it's been a, a, a great situation for the club. We've really attracted more members just because of our junior program. You know, once you get critical mass, uh, other juniors are going to want to come to to play at your club. I think so setting, uh, setting a vision. Yeah, right. Setting a vision and then, uh, then just, you know, also just like, don't believe out of the box that it can't be done because it's not been done before. When I talk to other club pros, like in big cities sometimes, and they're kind of like, oh, well, we can't get any families downtown. We've proven that's not true. You can. And, you know, we've even had families relocate from the burbs to downtown, believe it or not, just so the kids could be closer uh, to the club. So that's one thing. I think the other thing is, you know, there's a lot of good club pros out there. It's just, you know, a lot of it is just building relationships with as many people as you can and offering opportunities, make it easy for people who've never played the game before to get into the game. I, you know, a program that we offered when I first started that we recently rejuvenated uh, because so many, we have still so many people who want to get into the game is called a squash crash course where, um, take as many as eight people on two courts who've never played the game before. And uh, at the end of an hour and a half, they, they know the basic rules and we've got them playing and they're having a good time. From there, we usually get, I'd say at least half of those people end up sticking with the sport, maybe not right away, but eventually they come back to it. And even if they don't, they've experienced what it's all about. Yeah, it's just, you know, little things like that, you know, and we've been trying to grow our, grow our women's program for the past few years. I started a program uh, called Wine, Women, and Squash, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, you throw wine in the title, it's bound to get some fans right away. But basically, it's just a mixer. And then after the uh, hour and a half mixer, anybody who wants to uh, join us, we go down to the president's bar at the club and have some food or snacks or just a quick drink if somebody has to go on the run. And those have been extremely successful. The one I ran last month had 16, we had 16 women come. And sometimes some of the girls in our junior program will come join them on the court. Squash is an easy sell once you get people on the court. It's, it's a really fun game. Yeah, absolutely. Just shifting gears a little bit. So that's, you know, we talked a little bit about you and the club and the progression there, but then you being an athletic director puts you in a network of, I think, 40 other athletic directors that you guys all network with. And I'd be curious to hear what some of the latest club industry insights that you guys share or you're thinking about, whether something has been adopted or you guys are trying to think of to take that next step. What could you share with us? Uh, yeah, that, that's an interesting question. Yeah, and uh, the group is called NACAD, North American Club Athletic Directors. Um, wonderful group of people from Canada and across the U.S. We get together once a year for a conference. This coming year, it's going to be in Toronto, a great squash town. 
and try to share best practices. I think in terms of trends, uh, like at the last conference we had in Seattle, one of the things that's that's up and coming is wearable technology. I'm sure, knowing you, Connor, you probably know more about this than I do, and you're probably already into it. You probably are wearing a Fitbit or something right now. Am I right? Uh, guilty. <laughs> I wouldn't say guilty. I think it's I mean, a good how thing else do you know how many steps you're taking in a day, right? <laughs> I don't know. I guess there's no other way to know. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot on that. You know, there in like the, there's apps that can read your heart rate and tell you when you're stressed out, tell you when to take a break. Right? It sounds kind of goofy in a way, you know. I don't, but sometimes you know we don't realize we're stressed out until after the moment has passed. You realize you were stressed out. So uh, that's one thing. Um, you know, another challenge I think that clubs are having is, uh, especially private clubs, is trying to figure out, you know, how to effectively use social media. Um, how do we, what are the risks of a private club and private members, you know, Facebook with your staff, that kind of thing. And also like on a management level, um, for some of the larger clubs that have a lot of athletic staff, just communicating with your staff. Do you email? No. Twitter? Um, do you, do you just text everybody in the group? Those are the kind of things. But in terms of actual, uh, fitness trends, I think the jury is still out on pickleball, but that's something we've, we've talked about. I, I think that's probably, my gut feeling is pickleball is probably going to do well in uh, warmer climates and, and with the aging population, easier on the joints. I've never played it. Have you ever played? No, I haven't had a chance, but I am curious. Very curious. Yeah, I know a lot of people um, in the industry who are kind of into it and are big supporters of it. But uh, outside of that, I mean, I think friends, uh, uh, fitness pieces that are still uh, kind of hot, don't see yoga going anywhere, CrossFit, you know, intensity training, functional training big and another thing that we're we're trying to go on at my club now is just more group training you know you work out with two or three to maybe even up to six other people personal trainer and some kind of functional training unit yeah lots of clubs have these uh like modular type units that you can add different types of exercises to their metal frames like i said they look they look kind of like a jungle gym piece uh you, you know what i'm talking about right mm-hmm. yeah yeah so anyway uh yeah so like we recently installed one of those at the clubs and it's been a big hit it's amazing you know it's just it makes the workout the exercise a little more fun and we've got a timer set up there and people are starting to do stuff they form groups on their own but i think you know what all of us are trying to do at our clubs is keep people healthy and build community uh, within the club and if the more relationships you have within a club, the more likely you are to stay there. So that's always our overarching goal. I'm trying to think if there's any other fitness trends that we see really coming forward right now. You know, I'd say, you know, clubs like mine anywhere are fairly conservative. You know, we, we tend to, to wait until something is, becomes something more than a trend. Sure. You know, yeah. Before we really land on it. And just, well, I, think, uh, I guess, go ahead. I think, I think overall for the university club, I think they find a balance of innovating while maintaining traditions. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I could see the kind of creating the space for opportunity to be able to have athletics be core to your members, but still kind of waiting till we're not going to try the latest thing, but we'll wait till it comes around. So, it, so yeah, a good example of that. And I don't think we're alone with that. A good example of that would be like kettlebell training. And the first time kettlebell training came out, a lot of us were like, oh, what is this goofy Russian thing? But now if you don't have kettlebells, you're, <laughs> you know, you're not a gem, right? I mean, you have right. to have them. Yeah, so uh, I guess the other thing you're seeing uh, with technology is like, you know, there's more and more with the, the cardio machines. And you know, we just got some new life fitness treadmills in the other day. And, you know, you can log on to your, with your Netflix account now and watch what you want. I, I guess if that works, you know, me personally, I'm just going to say I've never been a big proponent of all that. It's like, for me, I'm either going to work out or I'm going to be entertained. Mm. <laughs> I find it hard to do both at the same time. 
I guess I'm old school that way. Um, well, but yeah, I can't. Yeah, go ahead. I, I, I no. If you have any closing thoughts that uh, I was going to uh, about the fitness things, no. I, I you know I, I guess yeah. One last thing is you know we're all trying to do more. I said keep our members healthy. We're if clubs have the resources, we're trying to do more with wellness. You know in terms of nutrition mm-hmm. and uh, you know stress reduction and just keeping people healthy. We don't have a huge facility uh, at the club. It's, it's adequate for sure. So. You know, we try to bring in speakers to talk about, you know, health and aging issues. And I, I started a program with Transcendental Meditation Center in Chicago about six or seven months ago, where they come and give introductory talks on meditation so people can learn about it and decide if they want to pursue it or not. So just trying to do things in terms of the wellness side to keep everybody healthy. Uh, one of the last topics I want to touch on uh, before going into the quick fire segment is uh, you you do have a leadership role. Uh, with it in the university club and what could you pass along some advice that has helped you or that you could share that has really allowed you to s- excel at the at the club in your role well, i didn't realize there were going to be these kind of tough questions in this interview connor <laughs> 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 i feel like did you ever there's this really old saturday night live where chevy chase is uh uh, uh acting as gerald ford during a debate, during a debate, and they ask him a question about the economic situation. And so he's got all these mathematical figures, and he says, uh, "I wasn't told there was going to be math uh, during the debate." That's about how I feel right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, um, you know, uh, Michelle, my wife, uh, she's the executive director of the um, Park Air Force Food Pantry, and she uh, and I talk about leadership a lot and 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 how to be a good manager uh, in terms of giving advice to someone. Uh, I think one of the things I've had to learn is when, uh, and sometimes relearn, is when a, a situation arises that is a problem or a conflict, to try to stop and not just react and, and you'll learn all sides of the story. You know, if there's a member complaint about something, if it involves, involves a staff person at all, there, uh, you know this, right? There's more than two sides. There's more than two sides to the story sometimes. Sure. So try to find out as much as you can. A lot of times I think we tend to have like a, a strong reaction, either you know, for one group or for one person or the other, per con before you really find out all the facts of the situation. I guess um, stop, think, gather all the information before you act. That's part of it. And I, you know, the other is I, I guess are kind of cliche. You know, I, I'm a big believer in leading by example. Doesn't matter what your position is. I'm still, uh, you know, I'll, I'll still pick up towels. I'll still pick up trash off the floor if it needs to be done. And you know, lend a hand to my team. And I want to make sure. They know I support them. And I guess uh, there's, there's probably more I could ramble on about, but uh, I guess in terms of addressing problems with uh, or challenges, I should say, with any of my team, with any of my staff, I, I always try to go into it like a coach. And that is, I want this person to succeed. Because if they succeed, we'll succeed, I'll succeed, the members will be happy. So I, I'm having a conversation with someone about an issue. I think they, I try to approach it from a, a point of view of like, hey, you need improvement and um, and there's different areas and how can I help you and, and, and let's get it done. And yeah, I mean, I've been lucky that, you know, I'll be honest and tell you that one of the reasons I took the job at the university club was because of the reputation the general manager had. And he, I've learned a lot from him. He you know, sets a great example, always acts with integrity, honesty, really cares about the staff and we're in the service industry, and if your staff are happy, the members are going to be happy. So, right. so that's a big part of keeping it going. Well, those all make a, a lot of sense. And uh, as we move into the quick fire, hopefully this isn't as um, as daunting for you. 
Well, uh, no, I always I always say don't give advice unless someone asks you for it. But you asked me, so I, I don't. I'm not sure how I did, but there you go. <laughs> oh, that was great. Um, so quick fire. Uh, moving on to this segment. I mean, this is you can answer as quick or as long as you want. There's no no time on this at all. Um, starting off well, with figured you. out by now, me answering short is probably not my strength. But go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Your favorite movie or documentary? Favorite movie or documentary? Maybe these will be harder. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's because I like so many movies. It, it, it's really challenging, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna show that I have a nerdy side and say Lord of the Rings. Any one of them uh, stands out, or just the entire uh, as a series? Uh, the, yeah, the trilogy. If I had to pick one, I guess I'd pick the first one, The Fellowship of the Rings. I can. All my bandmates, if they ever listen to this, are going to be making fun of me for being a nerd, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, what is something or an activity that gives you? disproportionate amount of happiness. Bad playing guitar. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. And how how often do you try and play? Um I try to play every day, but I don't succeed in that effort. I would probably say I play four or five times a week. Sometimes it's only twenty minutes, but other times it's, you know, two hours. I guess, you know, I have I haven't been competing that much lately, but I'll say I will say that I get a disproportionate amount of pleasure after winning a tough match. I just haven't won one in a long time, so <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Is there anything that you have tr- you're thinking of trying or have tried recently that's new to you? And um, that anything I've tried recently that's near to me? Is that what you said? New to you. New to me. You know that that's a good question for me because I have my spiel for uh, the new year for members to motivate everybody and as well as my staff and I is get out of your comfort zone. So uh, that's the uh, thing I've been trying to encourage them to do. That's how we grow, right? You have to get out of your everything you're comfortable with, do some different things. So uh, the thing, I haven't done it yet, but I've been working on it, is uh, I'm going to, I'm not much of a singer. I can carry a tune, but I'm going to do uh, a solo performance at an open mic night with a friend of mine that we've been working on. And they're, they're songs that I've written. It's a double level of discomfort, not oh, just... Wow. Uh, not just performing, you know, singing solo on the stage uh, with a, I have a little backup, but uh, singing songs that I've written too. Looking forward to it, but yeah, that's uh, new to me. <laughs> I like it. Well, I can't wait to hear how it goes. Uh, do, yeah. do you have, have you scheduled it or are you still? Uh... No, it's a, it's, uh, it's going to have to wait till after the Windy City Open. The local place that I, I'm going to perform at is, uh, they do it on Tuesday nights and currently that's when my band is practicing. So it's going to have to wait until March. I'll send you a special invitation, Connor. All right. Well, I have to make a special trip. Is there uh, an inspiring talk or video that you could recommend that someone could easily find on the internet? Let's see. I can tell you that I don't spend a lot of time on the internet surfing. Um, I tend to get, I read New York Times online and that kind of stuff. Um, or, or, or an article, um, um, anything that's easy to share. Um, wow, pal. Nothing is coming to mind there. Sorry. Well, gonna, the, gonna this seg- that's all right. This this one uh, can segue nicely. If you had to give a TED Talk, you're familiar with TED Talks though, right? Yes, I am. Okay. If you had to give a TED Talk, but the rules were it couldn't be something that you, you're known for, so you have to go try and explore something and share it, what, what would you want to do? Um, I had to give a talk, something I'm not known for. I would talk about, I'd probably talk about poetry. Interesting, why? Well, um, you know, that's, uh, it was one of my fields of study, and I do still write a little bit. I think in, in many ways it's kind of a, you know, people have lost the appreciation for it. I think, you know, hip-hop comes the closest to being a, an active part of that still. 
So that would be new to me to talk about that. I'd probably address it in terms of uh, hip hop and, and modern lyrics and, and how that's addressed as well as what's going on with contemporary poetry. Have you heard much of the, the Hamilton soundtrack? Um, I, I've heard bits and pieces, but we actually, my family and I went to see Hamilton. Oh my uh, gosh, even yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah, the amount we, of people that have seen it, you can count. So you saw it? Yeah, it was our it was a Christmas present for you know uh, Michelle and I've got you know two sons Aiden and Ken uh, eighteen and sixteen, and both of them really like history and of course they they're teenagers so they love hip hop so uh, they loved it yeah and I loved it too it was fantastic I, I I would urge you to see it are you familiar with the soundtrack Yeah I mean I've, I've only um, to to see it is something I would love to do I, I listen to the soundtrack uh, regularly and um, I mean it was just I mean talk about Lin Manuel Miranda's complete genius and just my brain lights up when I hear it and it really taps into I think you said like it's it's lyrical it's it's poetry and it's history all combined into one that so yeah what a genius so hey I'm going to flash back to your earlier question I thought of something that I would recommend that people watch because it has to do with Hamilton Um, it's a show I'd honestly never watched before but I was channel surfing this was like six weeks ago and uh, I saw Drunk History. Have you ever seen the show called Drunk History? Yes. And Lin-Manuel Miranda is the guest. Oh, and, no way. And, yes. And he tells the story. He basically tells you the story of Hamilton, the, the musical. But like he tells the story of Alexander Hamilton and these two women. I can't remember the actress's names, but you'd recognize them. Uh, and oh, my they're, gosh. They're perfectly cast, and they play uh, the two main uh, characters, Hamilton and um, Burr. And... Uh, Oh my God, it's absolutely hilarious. And Lin, Lin Manuel Miranda's trash, and he's telling the story and everything. So uh, well, you could probably find you could probably I, find that online. Yeah, for sure. And I can't believe I haven't seen that yet. So I'm gonna have to go. Oh, uh, you got to check it out. It's hysterical. And, and I will really for sure. Okay. All right. Uh, and this is the last question. Um, so I, I don't I don't think we need a drum roll, but we'll do one anyway. <laughs> um, and this is in your wheelhouse. If you could recommend any book, you know, it could be one book or books that people would read, what would it be and why? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I'm an avid reader. I, I read, you know, I read on the train back and forth. So that, that's a really challenging one for me. Um, I would say one of the best nonfiction books I've read uh, in years, I think it's called Being Mortal or On Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. I think it's G-A-W-A-N-D-E. I think is his last name. He's a physician and he talks about aging and uh, death in our society and what it's become and how to handle it. And, uh, you know, my parents uh, have both passed away, but if they were part of the aging population right now, uh, it's a book I would have found invaluable. And so, and even, uh, I find it invaluable even as we're all going to die. I think, you know, nobody's going to get, <laughs> nobody gets out of here alive as Jim Morrison said. Um, so it's a, it's a great book to read, to think about end of life. You know, it's a tough topic that a lot of people don't talk about, but this guy, this uh, physician, Dr. Gwande, talks about it honestly and with great research and beautifully. So, how do you recommend that one? Being mortal. Well, that actually sounds very interesting, and it's it's a topic that that actually really interests me because it is there are tough conversations and topics to have, and so any tool or resource to really kind of break it down and, and humanize it, I would, I would love to read. So, uh, being yeah, mortal, yeah, he, he, he's great at asking the right questions and making you think about them in a in a positive fashion. Um, uh, and what's the other see. one? Um, I have to, yeah, that, that, that's a tougher call. Well, I'll tell you one that I love, just a, a beautiful uh, novel, if I can think of the title of it. Anne Patchett is the author. And um, Bel Canto 
I know it can be. That's, it's a novel. Uh, actually, it was made into an opera. Um, uh, played in Chicago last year. Unfortunately, I missed it. So, yeah, Bel Canto. And the author is Ann Patchett. And the story is about an opera star who is imported to this uh, banana republic. They've also imported this Japanese uh, business leader whose his favorite singer is this, this woman, this diva. And that's why he comes and they're trying to get him to do a business deal. What happens is these um, guerrilla political guerrilla group takes over the house the, the night of performance and hold her hostage. And it's a story about what transpires uh, in the house as they're holding them hostage. It doesn't sound that fantastic, maybe, but it's extremely well written. And uh, the relationships that develop with the hostages and uh, the gorillas, it's, uh, it's a really uh, beautiful novel. Wow. Well, that uh, sounds like a good one to, to check out. So, you know, on that note, I just want to thank you for, for spending this time, I, I especially given that it's really in the thick of the season for you and how busy you are and, and juggling so many things. So I appreciate you taking uh, so much time and, and everything you've done for the sport. Uh, my pleasure. It was really fun talking with you, and I hope uh, the listeners find the conversation uh, interesting. And if anybody, this is the final plug, if anybody wants to come to see the Windy City Open and see some of the great stuff that we were talking about, tickets are still available at WindyCityOpen.com. February 23rd through March 1st is the tournament. And Connor, I know you're busy too, but we'd love to see you out there. Yeah, I'd love to be there. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time, John. Really appreciate it. All right. All right. My pleasure, Connor. Take care, man. Thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport, well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and, well, until next time, be well and have fun.